He says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Here's my sermon in a sentence for you this morning. Family is where we learn how to love. Let me say that one more time. Family is where we learn how to love. Now let's hear what John has to say about that in his letter to the early church. First John chapter three, verses 11 through 24 is where we're gonna be today. The words will be on the screen. I'll read the words in white and I'd like you to join me by reading out loud the words in yellow. This is what John writes. He says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. John says family is where we learn how to love. Now, I don't know exactly what the process looked like when God thought up the idea of the family, but one author imagined that it might have gone something like this, that one day God says to the angels, hey, I have an idea, I'm going to create the family. One of the angels says, well, well, what is it? And so God says, well, of course, I'm excited about this idea. Of course, I'm excited about all my ideas because one of the very best parts about being God is that you just never have a bad idea. But this one, this one, God says, is special. Family is going to be the way that I connect people in love. And it will work like this. An adult will sign up to take care of a tiny little stranger. Are they going to get paid, an angel asks. Well, no, God says, actually, that stranger is going to cost them quite a lot of money. But not only that, the stranger is not even going to be able to talk at first. It will just cry and scream, and you'll have to guess why. In fact, it will make you lose sleep and it will make messes all of the time that you have to clean up and, and, and it'll be utterly vulnerable. You're gonna have to watch that kid 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then when that tiny little stranger turns two, 
That little stranger is going to be able to say words like no and mine, and it will throw tantrums. And then God says, I'm thinking about inventing puberty. Not too sure about that one yet. But if I do, then they will get these strange things called hormones and they'll go crazy and these odd things will happen to their bodies and they'll get pimples and their voices will crack and their limbic systems will melt down and then, and then they'll grow up and then by the time they're all mature and beautiful and interesting and able to contribute, they will move away. That's the idea. Tell me what you think. <laughs> and the angels all just kind of shuffle around looking at their feet thinking, Lord, Who's going to do that? Somebody's got to tell them, Lord, who would sign up for this? Why would they do it? And here's where God gets really excited. He says, they won't even know why they do it. They'll just look at this little body and these little hands and those feet, and they will think that this tiny little stranger is beautiful, even though he looks like every other baby. <laughs> and every baby looks like Winston Churchill. <laughs> And then one day, God says, that tiny little stranger will smile at them, and they will think they won the lottery. And that tiny little stranger will say, Dada and Mama, but it will say Dada first because daddies are just so self-sacrificial and so noble, and my, how much I love them. <laughs> but moms are okay, too, and so they'll say Dada and, and Mama, and then those little hands and those arms will reach up and grab them around the neck, and those mamas and those dadas will think that for the very first time they know why hands and arms were created. And God says what it's really all about is just grace. That children, the new generation, will learn that they are prized and that they belong before they've ever done anything to earn it. And the older generation will learn that when they give, that's when they receive. And actually, when they give the most is when they receive the most. And then one day, God says, I will tell them, human race, I am your father. You are my daughter. You are my son. And they'll get it. And they will be undone. God made family, family is where we learn how to love. That's the good news. The bad news is the devil knows that too. And so when the devil wants to destroy the world, when the devil wants to corrupt love, he'll start by destroying and corrupting the family. And that's what John actually reminds us of. In that passage that we just read together, he reminds us of the very first family that God ever made, Adam and Eve and their sons, Cain and Abel. We read it in verses 11 and 12. John says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, here's the backstory for that. Way back in the very beginning, Genesis chapters one and two, God made the whole world and it was good. And he made the first man, Adam, and he made the first woman, Eve, and he put them together in the garden and he looked at the two of them together and he said, it is very good. But then along comes Genesis chapter three and Adam and Eve decide to do their own thing and they rebel against God's rule and sin enters the world and brokenness comes with it. And so for their own protection, God forces Adam and Eve to leave the garden. And then in Genesis chapter four, the very first story that we see after Adam and Eve have to leave the garden is the story of them having children. Genesis chapter four, verses one through eight says this. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. 
So here we have the first family ever, the first kids ever born. Can you imagine what that process must have been like? They have these two boys and poor Eve is just trying to figure it out as she goes along managing these brothers. And now these two boys, Cain and Abel, they were different like most brothers are. It says this, it says, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Cain and his offering, or on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So what we have here in this scene is the very first worship service in the Bible. And yet instead of unifying the family of God in love as worship was designed to do, instead, this very first worship service brings bitterness, and jealousy, and anger, and resentment. It says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God, in his infinite grace, is stooping down and he's warning Cain here. He's explaining to him what's happening. Hey, you're undergoing temptation, but you don't have to give in. You don't have to do it. You can choose to do the right thing. And yet it's no use. The text says, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Family's supposed to be where we learn how to love, and yet there's a worship service that goes wrong. Love turns to hate, and the very first human death in history is a family murder. And you know, if we're not careful, church, the same thing can happen right in here with us. Because here in 1 John chapter 3, John draws a very explicit parallel between the biological family that God gave you to learn how to love and the spiritual family that God gave you to learn how to love. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a lone ranger. You belong to the family of God. And Satan would love nothing more than to tear apart and bring division into the family of God, into Plainfield Christian Church. But we don't want to be Cain and Abel, do we? No. And so, just like God warned Cain in love, I'd like to offer you a very gentle warning today because I love you, the same warning that God gave Cain. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And through Jesus, we must rule over it. So, uh, every week I, I run through my sermon with Rebecca. She helps me fix it, right? Because uh, she's smarter than me. Uh, but when, when I practiced the sermon with her, she said that I needed to warn you that it's time to put on your steel-toed boots today, okay? Because we're gonna do some toe-stepping. So you can put on your steel-toed boots this morning. Put them on, because we got some hard truth from God's word. But it's all coming from God's word, and it's all coming from love, and I think you can handle it. You ready to dive in? All right, today, if you've got your steel-toed boots on, we're gonna look at three warnings here from this text I'm gonna use 1 John chapter three and Genesis chapter four, the stories of Cain and Abel, uh, to offer you three ways that as pastors, Steve and I have seen our love as a family be threatened over the last couple years. So here's warning number one, got your boots on? Warning number one, love is at stake when we're angry with each other. Love's at stake when we're angry with each other. 
Now, I think we are all instinctively familiar with the destructive power of anger, aren't we? Uh, In his autobiography, the former manager of the New York Yankees, a man by the name of Billy Martin, tells a story of a time when he and the great Mickey Mantle drove down to Texas together to go deer hunting. And they were gonna hunt at uh, a friend's ranch. This guy was a friend of Mickey Mantle. He'd offered them their ranch to hunt. So they get down there to Texas and, and Mickey Mantle says, hey, Billy, you stay here in the car. I'll run in. Just let them know we're here. Double check and then we'll go start hunting. Sound good? And so Mickey Mantle, goes inside and the owner says, yeah, no problem. You can hunt all over the place. That's no big deal at all. But tell you what, before you start hunting, can you do me a favor? I've got this mule out back in the barn and she can't see anymore. I just don't have the heart to put the poor thing down. So would you mind just going and putting that mule out of her misery for me, out of his misery for me? And Mickey Mantle says, sure, no problem. But as Mickey Mantle's heading back out to the car, he decides to play a joke on his manager, Billy Martin. So Mickey Mantle pretends to be all angry. He hops back in the car, slams the door. He's fuming with rage. And Billy Martin says, what in the world's going on? Mickey Mantle says, he won't let us hunt here. Billy says, are, are, are you serious? And Mickey Mantle says, yeah, I can't, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm steaming. Tell you what, I'm gonna show him a thing or two. I'm gonna go out there to the barn. I'm gonna shoot his mule. <laughs> Billy Martin says, whoa. But sure enough, Mickey Mantle grabs his gun, goes out to the barn, pow, puts the mule down. Whoa. Well, Mickey Mantle comes out of the barn and he's surprised to see Billy Martin now standing outside of the car with his rifle smoking. And Mickey Mantle says, what, what's going on? Billy Martin says, well, yeah, we'll show him. Let's get out of here. I got two of his cows, too. (laughs) Anger's a powerful thing, right? (laughs) And we know this. We could all tell our own stories about this, probably. But Cain, Cain was angry when God accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice, but not his. And rather than ruling over his anger, like God suggested, Cain let his anger control him. And we see that all around, don't we? It just seems like everybody's anger about everything, right? Everybody's just mad these days, aren't they? You got your boots on? Here's the hard truth is that the anger is not just out there. It's in here too. And I gotta tell you that that sometimes when I hear the way we, we talk about people who disagree with us, when I think about what our kids are learning based on how they're listening to their parents discuss things or when I see how we can sometimes turn on people so quickly or slander them or demonize even other believers who happen to think something that's differently than we do. It just, it breaks my heart. And I get this. This is is messy. This is hard. This is not easy. You're sitting in a room right now full of people who think differently than you do. We have a diverse church. You got about every opinion you could think of in this room right now. Love is messy sometimes. I get that. It reminds me of the the old saying that to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. (laughs) And I get it, but God has given us this family so that we can learn how to love. So can I challenge you? Watch what you say. Watch watch what you post. God gave us this family so that we can love. And, And if we only love and treat with respect the people who agree with us, what kind of love is that? In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter five. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you're in my family, we don't just love the people who think like we do. We're called to have a deeper love, a more perfect kind of love. So what is this perfect love that God shows us that we're called to show to each other? Well, Paul describes it really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Perhaps you've heard this description. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now here's the kicker. See if this describes you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Does that describe you? Because I don't know about you, but that, for me, that's pretty convicting. And Paul doesn't have to tell us this for how to love the easy people in our lives. We do that pretty well on our own, don't we? It's for the difficult people. So let, let, let's flip it. Let's try another test here. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says that our love for God and our love for people are inextricably linked, that you can measure your love for God by your love for God's people. Now, if that's true, then here's my challenge for you. I want you to pull into your mind right now the person that you love the least. I mean, the most difficult person in your life, the person who makes you angriest, the person you disagree with the most, pull into your mind right now the person that you love the least. Now, if Jesus is right and our love for God and our love for people are linked, then you cannot love God more than you love that person. Imagine with me for a moment that the Virgin Mary is here in this church service. She's in the 11 o'clock service at PCC. How do you think we would treat her? I mean, she, teenage girl, she's, she's got the Messiah in her womb, right? Like we, we, we would give her the best seat in the house, right? Anything she needs, anything she said, we'd be hanging on every word. We'd be listening to everything she said. And even if we didn't agree with all of her opinions, we would certainly show her honor because she's got the son of God inside of her, right? Listen, if you're a member of God's family, every member of God's family has the very presence and character of Jesus living inside of them and they are worthy of our honor and our love and our love is threatened. That love is threatened when we're angry with each other. That's warning number one. Still got your boots on? All right, here's warning number two. Love is at stake when we're distant from one another. When we're distant from one another. Now, Cain drove a wedge between he and Abel. He operated in isolation and it tore their family apart. And all too often, that's typical of us Christians sometimes. Right now, today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is a church building that was built on the site of Jesus's tomb, supposedly. And so this is a, you know, if this was really the site where Jesus was buried and the site where he rose from the dead three days later, that should be this incredibly holy place of unity and love, right? Well, there's actually six Christian churches that meet in that church building, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and those six Christian churches can't get along, and so a local Muslim family has to be in charge of keeping the key to the church building. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? And all too often, we as Christians can divide easily because we love shallowly. 
And yet, man, as you read through the New Testament, we just get smacked in the face over and over again with this picture that the church, the family of God, is supposed to be this place where there's this compelling unity in the midst of diversity, that there's a group of Jews and Gentiles and old and young and men and women and rich and poor and slave and free. And Acts chapter 2, verse 44 says, all the believers were together. It's this kind of radical togetherness in spite of their differences that they're bonded by love. And that's what Jesus prayed for on the night before he was crucified. John 17, Jesus has just been praying for his disciples. And then he says this. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That's you and me. Here's what he prays for us. He says that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that? Do you want the world to know about Jesus? All right, it's not rhetorical. Do you want the world to know about Jesus? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, if so, Jesus says that the very best thing then that we can do is to be one, to be unified as the church, as the family of God. And then he says, then the world will know. And it's happened before in the ancient city of Antioch. Now, Antioch was this ancient city. It was big by those standards. It was about half a million people, and it was just this melting pot. There were at least 18 different known ethnicities and cultures, people groups in Antioch, except when the city of Antioch was originally built, it was a divided city. Each people group kind of kept to themselves in their own section of the city, and sometimes there was a a literal wall between people groups until this little ragtag group of people started worshiping a Jewish carpenter that they claimed had raised from the dead. And in this scrappy little group, all of those nationalities mixed together and they started building relationships across ethnic and socioeconomic lines. And the people of Antioch, they looked at this radical kind of unity and it just didn't make sense to them. They didn't have a name for those kind of people. And so they made one up. Acts chapter 11, verse 26 says, the disciples were first called Christians, little Christs, Christians at Antioch. They're like, we don't know what to do with you people. We don't know what kind of love this is, what you little Christs are doing. Christians, man, wouldn't you love that if they said that when they walked in here? But that kind of love, that can't be done at a distance. The leadership of this church, and I believe with every fiber of my being, that God has given Plainfield Christian Church an incredible opportunity for that kind of unity, that kind of love. Did you know this is the first time in history that there are five generations alive and active in the church at one time. It's never happened before, but it's happening right now. This is also the first time in history that there will be more children growing up not in a two-parent home than in a two-parent home. Only 41% of kids are gonna grow up in a two-parent home. What that means is that God has given us, church, an opportunity for this incredible kind of intergenerational discipleship where we're not hanging out in our own groups, we're together, we're rubbing shoulders like you saw in that video and we're together and the old are speaking wisdom and truth and love into the young and the young are listening and loving and learning from and serving the old, but that doesn't happen at a distance. And that's part of the reason that we're remodeling the sanctuary over there. It's not just about some fresh paint and new carpet. That's gonna go out of style in a few years anyway. But what's gonna last is the spiritual house that God is building here. A body of believers who are committed to being one, committed to being together, no matter the cost, no matter the differences, to being one in the same way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. But we don't naturally do this, do we? It's kind of hard. Like my natural tendency, just like yours, is to kind of split off and be with people who are like me. 
We're like the Italian dressing in your fridge. You gotta shake it up if you want it to mix, right? And, and, and we've, we've been through some shaking the last few months, haven't we? Because for a long time now, we've, we've kind of done our different things, we've kind of been separate, and yet God is calling us as a church together. Because this family, this is where we learn how to love. Can you imagine? Somebody walked in those doors, and they saw a room full of vaxxers and anti-vaxxers and Democrats and Republicans and people of every age, every, every skin color, every socioeconomic status, all together, worshiping together, singing together, laughing together, eating together, serving one another. Then I think it would come true what Jesus said in John 13, that they will know you're my disciples with how you love one another. Oh, Lord, let it be true of us. Still got your boots on? Love is at stake when we're angry with each other. Love's at stake when we're distant from one another. And the third thing is this. Love is at stake when we worship selfishly. Here's what John says in 1 John 3. He reminds us that true love is sacrificial love. Verse 16, he says, and this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ has laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He's saying that as a church, we are not just called to appreciate Jesus's sacrifice, we're also called to imitate Jesus's sacrifice. That, and our love is at stake when we worship selfishly, that that's actually what led Cain to murder his brother Abel. I'm sure Cain didn't always hate his brother, but what corrupted Cain's heart and what led him to kill his brother was selfish worship. We see here this picture in Genesis 4 where Abel, on the one hand, brings his best to God, his best sacrifice. He worships sacrificially, and yet as far as we can tell, Cain just kind of had this half-hearted worship, this sacrifice where he wasn't really just giving God his best. He's kind of just giving God his leftovers. And worship that costs nothing is no worship at all. Now, if you and I are watching Cain's sacrifice, we might not have been able to tell. It might have looked pious and proper from the outside, as many worship services do. But as God said, said in Isaiah chapter 29, he said, these people, they come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts... Their hearts are far from me. The kind of worship that God desires is not just a form. He desires for our hearts to be sacrificial and fully surrendered to him. Hebrews chapter 13 says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of praise. So can I crack the door a little bit and let you know what we're kind of wrestling with as a church leadership? We're wrestling right now with what this means in terms of worship, about how we offer a sacrifice of praise. If every time we gather together in worship, we are to bring God a sacrifice of praise, bringing him what he deserves as our awesome God, then that means we're kind of wrestling with where the online service fits in all of this. Because technology has some absolutely incredible benefits. I'm so thankful that when we were, had to be out of the building for 25 weeks, we were able to stay connected together online. And, and for those of you right now who are watching online because you're new with us or you're just checking us out, we're so thankful that you're able to join us. For those of you who can't be here, we're so, so thankful you're able to connect with us in this way. But we also know that the online service has some potentially dangerous long-term ramifications for your spiritual health. During those 25 weeks when we were out of the building and I was watching the service online by myself, I gotta admit, it's kind of nice sometimes, isn't it? Just kind of sit on the couch in your jammies, get your, you know, in your underwear with your coffee, like church ain't bad. It's kind of fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's easy. But, but if I'm looking deep down inside, inside my heart, a lot of the time when I'm watching that online service, I wasn't really bringing God a sacrifice of praise. And so we just gotta admit that that as the leadership of this church, it would be pastoral malpractice 
because we care so deeply for your soul if we did not warn you that sometimes what we have seen in this season online and in person is a growing Cain-like attitude toward worship where we bring God what we feel like bringing him instead of what he actually deserves. And by all means, church, I hope you get something when you come here. I hope it blesses you. I hope it challenges you and encourages you. But listen, we don't come here just to get something. Our primary reason for coming here is to bring something, to give God the sacrifice of praise that he deserves. Because family's where we learn how to love. And this is how God has loved us. He loved us sacrificially. I know we've had some heavy stuff talking about today, these three warnings. If I stepped on your toes, it's because God stepped on mine first. So sorry, right? But family's where we learn how to love and we have seen that love be threatened when we're angry with each other, when we're distant from each other, when we worship selfishly. And gotta tell you, I've been guilty of all three of those things just this week. I mean, so many times I have been like Cain. I have harbored anger or, or selfishness or disunity in my own heart. And if you've been confronted with your sin today, like I've been confronted with mine, then maybe you're feeling like Cain felt. In Genesis chapter four, when God confronts Cain for murdering his brother, he cries out and he says, Lord, my punishment, it's more than I can bear. Man, that's my cry. It's probably yours too. That this punishment that we deserve, it's too heavy. It's more than we can bear. We can't deal with our sin. What do we have to do? And yet, thankfully, God the Father sent his son Jesus. And because his family is where we learn how to love, he didn't stay distant. He came close and he didn't harbor anger. He bled mercy and he didn't love us selfishly. He loved us with the utmost sacrifice, dying for us so that we could be adopted into the family of God so that we could call him father and we could call one another brother and sister and we can be his sons and daughters. What kind of love is this? This is the love we've been given and the love that we've been called to show. Take your communion if you've got it now. I'm gonna pray in just a minute. And after we do, you're gonna have a few moments to take that by yourself when you feel ready. We're gonna take this little piece of bread and remember Jesus's body. We're gonna drink that little, piece of, little cup of juice and remember his blood, that this is the kind of love that binds us together as his family. And I pray it's the kind of love people see when they join us. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so glad we get to call you that. Thank you so much for adopting us. We get to be your sons and daughters. We get to be brothers and sisters together. This is a good family to belong to. We're not perfect, Lord, so we do ask that your Holy Spirit would cut us to the heart, convict us by the double-edged sword of your word of any anger or any selfishness, any disunity that remains among us. We want to be fully surrendered, so help us. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us first when we didn't deserve it, even in all of our brokenness. You laid it all down for us. And we ask that you would fill us with that love so that when people come in here, they look around at who we are and how we love and they would say, what kind of people are this? What kind of God must this be? Let it be, Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, 
we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.